It is so good to be with you tonight. And I want to say on behalf of my family, we very much appreciate the invitation to come and be with you. And especially on a personal level, whenever I'm asked to preach the gospel in any location, it is a humbling experience and it's an honor to be able to stand before you the members of this congregation, and those that may be visiting tonight. Again, if you're visiting tonight, welcome. And to all of those who are here tonight, and I'll borrow this expression from a friend, I want you to get your swords out. I want you to get your Bibles out. I'd like for you to follow along with me. I want to thank the church for the effort here. And as... You go through this study this week looking at the question, what makes the church of Christ different? And essentially what we're asking when we are seeking to follow the Lord's instructions and to derive what we do from the Lord's authority, and that's the lesson that you heard last night, and everything that we do having a thus saith the Lord. And so when we ask the question, what makes the church of Christ different, we're also asking, what makes us different? What makes what we do different? And I've been charged this evening with looking at the work of the church and how it is financed. And again, in many ways, these are very simple lessons. But to some who have never been taught even these most basic precepts and principles... They're vitally important to what we do. And I cannot strive that enough. When we look at the work of the church and we examine it, we see that what makes the church different from any other institution is her mission. That differentiates the church from anything you can think of on this earth. And understanding that, the mission not only makes the church different, but it makes her special. It doesn't make her equal with everything else. It makes her special. It makes her stand out so that what we do also stands out. And what we do is also very special. I asked you to get out your swords and if you would open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. And we're going to begin our study by looking in the passage that we find between verses 13 and 18. Again, Matthew 16, 13 through 18. And I have put several of the passages that I'm going to refer to up on this screen because I do believe that you retain more of what you see than what you hear. But I do want you to follow along in your Bible. And as Brother Greg said, make sure that what I'm preaching is the truth. And if it is the truth, then we need to be taking advantage of doing the truth. As we look in this passage, beginning in verse 13, it tells us that when Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, He asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And I want to ask you tonight, are they right? Were they right? Those men and even women that said that. And I want to impress impress the fact upon you that man sometimes still does not recognize who Jesus really is. And as I'm sure you talked about last night, they don't recognize His authority. 
And that's important to have that foundation and to have that basis as we go forward and understanding that. We go back to the text in verse 15 in which Jesus said to them, but who do you say that I am? And as we understand that, we also understand that our comprehension of what the church is depends on whom we believe Jesus to be. Either we believe that Jesus has the authority to be the head of His church, to rule His church, to dictate how and what that church does, or we don't. And it's very simple. In 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9, I want to share with you the fact that by inspiration it's revealed to us that those that are members of the church are different, are special. You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, His own special people. How many times do we forget that? And how many times does the world, veiling itself through the form of a church, try to make the church into something that's common, something that you see every day, something that is common, something that is profane? We are special so that we may proclaim the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. And we go back to that great confession in Matthew 16 and 16 in which Jesus, or which Peter told Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's who I say that you are. And that's who we should say that He is. And when we look at that in light of what we read in Acts chapter 4 and verses 11 and 12 and for some reason, the passage is not appearing up here, but look at it in your Bible. In Acts chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, in which Peter said, and he's talking to the, the chief rulers and the elders and the scribes and the Jewish council, and they're questioning him and John about the healing of the lame beggar. And they make the point that Jesus is the stone which was rejected by you builders which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. In Ephesians 5 and 23, we read that Jesus is the head of the church. So we should understand that. And also understand this, that our faith in Jesus does not come from man. It's not derived from earthly knowledge. It comes from the Word of God. Romans 10 and 17. Many of you can quote it. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing comes by what? Hearing comes by the Word of God. And our faith is derived from that, not what man gives us. And the mission of the church comes from Christ, who is the Word. Go back to the text. Matthew 16, verses 17 and 18, in which Jesus answered and said, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. Again, our faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Have any of you ever been to the gates of Hades? Have you ever seen it? Have you ever touched them? And of course you would say no. Because it's a spiritual battle that we're waging. It's a spiritual battle in which we're engaged. It's not physical. 
It is a spiritual mission. Jesus' purposes and intents were to save our souls. It was to save us from spiritual death. Not to provide us with all the physical things, but in contrast, when we ask what the work of the Lord's church is, we have to look at what man says. And what man conceives the work of the church is, And of course, when we think about what happens and what churches are doing in this day and age, and we understand it, we see why churches do what they do. It's to appeal to the carnal side of man. It's to appeal to the physical nature and the physical desires of men, women, and children in an attempt to reach the spiritual side. Some people in the world may think that this is effective. And that it works. But I want to point you back and ask, what does the Word of God say about what the work of the church is and what the mission of the church is? Turn over to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, and we'll refer to this passage multiple times tonight. But beginning in verse 7, Ephesians chapter 4. And I want you to keep this in mind as we talk about not only the work of the church and the mission of the church, but also when we talk about the financing of the church, because it's important. It's an important foundation and principle to what we'll study. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Was that a physical gift or was it a spiritual gift? Was it a common gift or was it the greatest gift that anyone could have ever given at any given time? Again, we're talking about something spiritual. When we read in verses 11 and 12 that He Himself gave some to be apostles and some prophets, and we know that we don't have apostles and prophets anymore in this day and age. We have some who are evangelists and some who are pastors or elders. We have some that are teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. So when we... Ask what the work of the Lord's church is. I'm going to give you a visual demonstration. And I want you to remember, because I know that as a speaker, and I've spoken to several groups in various situations, our short-term memories often fail us. Sometimes we don't remember and retain a lot of information unless we write it down or we record it, and and this will be on, on CDs to where you can hear it. But I want you to remember these things. And I'm going to try and make it easy for you to do. We're going to look at the three P's, starting with the equipping of the saints, and examining what the work of the Lord's church is. And as you would guess, an important component of the Lord's work is to preach. Look over at Matthew chapter 28, beginning in verse 18. And which Jesus says, and this is an important point derived from what you studied last night. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. Similar to that, what we read in Mark chapter 16, verses 15 and 16, in which Jesus said to the disciples, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. This is a spiritual mission. 
It has spiritual function and spiritual purposes. And it has importance. But I also want you to note as we consider 1 Peter 3, verses 21 and 22, when it talks about the anti-type to the water that had saved Noah and his family in the Old Testament, baptism, which is defined not as the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. What is the question that we are answering with baptism? It's not a physical one. It's a spiritual one. It is a baptism through the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to Him. I don't know about you, but when I consider the limited state of my education, it doesn't take a whole lot to understand that Jesus has all authority and power. And that we should listen to what He says. Can we agree on that? Because it is important. It is important as we understand the mission of the church to preach. And very quickly, we're going to ask some very common questions. Who? What? Where? When? How? And why? Who is to preach? When we consider who is to go out and do these things that are important, delivering this important message. And I know this may seem very general by saying that those who are capable. But I want you to understand I'm not limiting that to those like Greg or those like the other speakers who are invited here tonight. We are all capable of preaching and teaching the Gospel in some form or fashion. And I want you to note in 1 Peter chapter 4 and in verses 10 and 11, remember we talked about the gifts that we have received. Each one has received a gift. Minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If anyone speaks, and I would say that can include any one of us, if anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. What does it mean to speak as the oracles of God? It means to speak by the authority of God. By the authority and the power of the knowledge of the truth of the Word that has been delivered. If anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Are you capable of glorifying God in what you do and what you say and in what you teach and in what you preach? What do we preach? What is taught when we preach? Do we just get up and start talking about whatever comes to mind? Or do we understand that our mission in the church is to preach the truth. That seems so simple. It seems so elementary. But so many people don't get it. So many people don't understand it. Look in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and in verse 2 in which Paul very plainly says, preach the Word. Have you ever had the opportunity to listen to someone? And it's hard for me to do this sometimes. Have you ever had the opportunity to listen to somebody preach on television? Perhaps it's a Joel Osteen. Somebody that's got a, a million dollar smile. Has got more hair than I would ever hope to have. Looks great, stands in front of thousands of people and commands their attention and respect. And do you know that people leave that assembly not knowing what they need to do to be saved? 
They may know how to improve their finances. They might know how to dress better. They might know how to reduce their life, reduce the anxiety in their lives by exercising. But they don't know what they need to do to be saved. And it's a travesty. When we preach the Word, we don't have to stand up and give a discourse on current events or politics. We don't have to tell all of our personal stories and all of our preferences and talk about those things, although we share those with each other on a personal level. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. But if we realize we need to preach the Word, not shunning to declare the whole counsel of God, Understanding that we have to commend you to God and to the Word of His grace which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3 and verse 15, and that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Is there any man, any woman, any person alive that by telling you their limited knowledge about life can save you, can give you what you need to know in order to be saved. We're given the task and the command to preach everywhere. Look at Acts 8 and 4, in which it tells us that those who were scattered, those that were being persecuted, what did they do? Did they run and hide? Did they go find other jobs and other places to live? And did they try and mix in and try and mingle with their new town or new location? They went everywhere preaching the Word. I can tell you as someone that also works a secular job during the week, that not only do I have the chance to talk to people about the Bible everywhere, but I also have opportunities to do it every time that I want to. When we talk about where, we not only mention everywhere, when we ask when, right here, right now. Whenever you want to talk about it. Second Timothy chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, Paul said, be ready in season and out of season. Do you remember the old cartoons with Bugs Bunny and Donald Duck? How they'd say, duck season. Wabbit season, duck season, rabbit season. And they go back and forth and back and forth until somebody got shot or somebody got hurt. When is it the right season to preach the Word of God? And it's right now. Because the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. And you know what those teachers are going to say? What those teachers are going to preach? They're not going to be preaching the truth. They're going to be preaching what people want to hear. When we preach the Word, how do we do it? How do we present the Word? And I would very simply answer you as Christ did. And in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 2, Paul gives the prescription for how we preach and how we teach. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching. We've got a lot of preachers who are good at exhorting and making people feel good and entertaining them. 
And making them have this shiny, happy feeling when they leave the assembly. But we're getting away from where we're able to convince people of the truth. And we're especially going away from the time that we need to rebuke those who sin. It's important for us as preachers and teachers to be able to do that. And we ask the question, why do we need to preach? There is no more important work than the sowing the seed of the Lord's kingdom and equipping her saints with the, with the Word that brings the saving Gospel to lost souls. Why can't we look out upon the fields and see that they are white, ready to harvest, and understand that we have a mission to go preach? That second P that we're talking about, some people look at the work of ministry as benevolence just for sake of tonight. We're going to call that providing. That second P that you'll remember is providing. And we'll look at 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 10, in which Paul wrote to the church at Corinth and said, Now may he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food supply and multiply the seed you have sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness. I want you to think about what you have been given in your life. And I want you to consider what God has blessed you with. And understand that those are the things that produce seed that allow us to keep growing and to keep multiplying and increasing the fruits of our righteousness. And being appreciative of that, when we ask who needs to provide, who needs to give, and there are some of these lessons that are going to tie in very well with what we talk about when it comes to the financing of the church, so please pay attention. We ask the question, who should give? And there are some out there, especially in today's political debates, that say, you know what, those who should give are the ones that have the most. Those who should give are the ones that are rich in this world. Those who have money. And I want you to consider the widow that we read about in Mark chapter 12. And in verse 44, in which Jesus said, this woman has given all that she had even of her living. And in context of what we read in 1 Corinthians 16 and 2, as well as 2 Corinthians 9 and 7, we learn that that is each one of us. 1 Corinthians 16 and 2, let each one of you lay something aside. So let each one give, as each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards. Do we all have the same things in the same amounts? Of course not. Are we able to save the same amounts at the same times? Of course not. But as Christians, we understand that part of our mission and part of who we are and what we do is to be industrious, is to work hard, is to make provisions for the difficult and lean times, to follow the examples of those who were not only prudent with what they had financially, but especially what they had spiritually. To whom should we provide? If you were to ask those who are worldly and claim to be religious, there would be no bounds to whom the church should provide for. When we're talking about our mission, however, we need to understand that that mission is focused. That mission is concentrated. 
We understand that we are to give and be willing to give at any time. But if we understand, first of all, that the saints, those of our number and those that are in other places who are struggling to teach and preach the gospel, those who are working in harm's way, there is a need, a concentrated need for us to be benevolent to those groups. In 1 Corinthians 16 and 1, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also. In 2 Corinthians 9 and 12, it tells us that the administration of this service not only supplies the needs of the saints, but also is abounding through many thanksgivings to God. Why are so many churches having financial trouble in these days? Have you ever asked yourself that? Why are so many churches struggling to try and meet their budgets and to try and take care of all the things that they committed themselves to do? And I'm not saying that they don't have good intentions or that they don't have zeal. But what I'm saying is, comparing them to those that Paul talked about in Romans 10 and 2, they have a zeal, but it's not according to the knowledge of God. People have overcommitted themselves to causes that have nothing to do with the mission of the church, and now they're caught having to meet those obligations. And they're struggling to find ways to do that. But I want you to look and answer the question, which saints are we to support? And we start out by looking in 1 Corinthians 9 and 14 that those who preach the gospel, even so the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. I'm here to tell you, and I'm sure Brother Greg would agree, preaching the gospel is not easy work. But nothing, again, when we put our heart and soul behind it and we put our backs into it, we're going to work hard and we're going to produce results with our work. But those that preach, we have authority to support those that are preaching. We also looked at, at widows, and I want to make this point in 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 14, in which it says, If any believing man or woman has widows, let them relieve them. And do not let the church be burdened that it may relieve those who are really widows. Again, we have a responsibility as Christians to be industrious, hardworking, and self-supportive. And in any way that we can support our families and we can support one another, we should. But if it comes to a situation where somebody is in desperate need, like a widow, a part of that congregation, then they should receive that support. We even read in 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 17 that elders are eligible for financial support. Many elders I know don't take or receive financial support, but we learn through the Scriptures that they are eligible. What about saints in other places? Look in Acts chapter 11 and verse 29 and 30, which it says that the disciples, each according to his ability, these are the saints in Antioch, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. This they also did and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. When we look at providing, we ask, what should we provide? What is it our responsibility to provide? And again, through the Scriptures, we learn that it's a portion of our blessings because we're taking those blessings and we're putting them aside, storing up as He may prosper. But also, remembering from Philippians chapter 4 and verse 16, which Paul wrote to the Philippians and said that even in Thessalonica, you sent aid once and again for my necessities. 
Did they always have to send Paul money? No. They sent him what he needed. And we need to remember when we're providing benevolence to the saints and to others, it may not always be money. And in some cases, it shouldn't always be money. It should be what they need. And we should stand prepared to be able to do that because we take a portion of what we have prospered and we save it for that. Where did we provide? The simple question, the simple answer to that is in the assembly and beyond. Look in Acts chapter 20 and verse 7 and we'll see a very basic precept of what we're commanded to do. Many people say that we don't have the precedent to gather together on the first day of the week and observe the Lord's body and blood. But in Acts 20 and 7, it tells us that the Christians in Troas met on the first day of the week. It's when they came together to break bread. It's not talking about a common meal. It's not talking about just getting together to have a certain meal together. They're coming together to observe the body and blood. And I want you to consider 1 Corinthians 16 and 2, in which it says on the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside. We asked when, and not only did we see that reflected in Acts 20 and 7 and 1 Corinthians 16 and 2, but we learned from Galatians 6 and 10 that when we provide benevolence, it is as we have opportunity. But again, note, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Our primary obligation is to our brethren, is to the saints. The church is not designed, nor was it designed to be, everything to everybody. Providing all things to every man and woman and child at all times. If that were so, if that were the mission of the church, we could not, in any real, realistic outlook, we could not meet the spiritual needs of those in this location or any other location because we would constantly be attending to the physical needs of those around us. Not only Matthew 25, but also Galatians 6 shows us that as we have opportunity on a personal basis, we can do that to help others who are in need. Look at Romans 12, 11-13. Not lagging in diligence. You need to be fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. And I want to ask you, does that sound like a once-a-week thing? Does that sound like something that we only do on the first day of the week? When it talks about distributing to the needs of the saints, there are some brethren that have a constant need. Not only in this community, but around the world. There are those that need it, and there are other brethren who have great bounty and great plenty who are able to assist in that way. How do we provide? As Christ did. And I want you to look at the nature of giving. Go back to 2 Corinthians 9 and verse 7, in which it says, As he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. Could you imagine Christ? hanging on the cross with the nails in His hands and His feet, the crown of thorns on His head, 
the lacerations on his body and the blood flowing from his body, being completely dehydrated, and looking at either side of him and looking down at the people in front of him and saying, you know what? This was not worth it. You know what? I did this for all of the, all of you who are sitting here spitting at me, reviling me. I know I needed to do it. It was necessary for me to do it because it's part of this plan. But I can tell you, I wish I wasn't here. Romans 12 and 6, Having then differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use our gifts. He who gives with liberality. And why do we do that? It is because we remember the words of the Lord Jesus that He said, it is more blessed to give than receive. That's the nature of giving. That's who we are. That's what our mission is. Do we realize that it's limited in some circumstances? Yes, it is. Do we realize the people to whom it is given is limited? Yes, we do. That makes us different. That makes us stand out and that makes our mission special. Let's talk about edifying the body. When we ask what the work of the Lord's church, not only is it to preach and to provide, but in reference to edification, we are to perfect. To perfect. Turn over with me back to Ephesians chapter 4. And look at verses 12 and 13. And we talked about those gifts and those roles that were given. And what the purpose of that was, was for the edifying of the body of Christ till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's an important mission. That's an important reason and function why the church is here. And as we perfect, and as we ask who should perfect, it's the same ones who are to give. And that's each one of us. That's all of us. If you consider verses 14, 15 and 16 of Ephesians 4, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things unto Him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body, not just parts, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share. Does every part carry the same load? Have the same measure of gifts? No, they're different. But we are all expected to carry that part. To carry that load. When we ask what we are to perfect, we go back to verses 15 and 16 of Ephesians 4. We are to perfect the body of Christ because as we see in the, at the end of the passage, it causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. And how do we accomplish that? We speak the truth in love. We speak the truth in love. You remember... One of the things that we needed to do when we preached the Gospel is to convince and rebuke and exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. And that's, how we, that's one way that we edify one another. Some of you might ask, where do we perfect? And it's where we assemble. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25 reminds us of an important point that we have to consider one another 
in order to stir up love and good works. And I commend you for being here. I commend you for taking part and having an interest in those things that are spiritual. But I don't want you to leave here tonight just thinking that you came here for yourself. The reason that we attend and the reason that we come, even when we don't feel well, even when the weather's not good, even when things may not have gone our way that day, it's for the person sitting beside you on the right, it's for the person sitting beside you on the left, it's for the person in front of you, behind you, across the auditorium, in the bathroom, in the back sitting down, and outside holding a young child. It's for each other. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another. When do we perfect? We do it at every opportunity that we have. Hebrews 10 and 25 reminds us that we need to exhort one another. And so much the more as you see the day approaching. Don't you know that you're one day closer either to heaven or to spiritual death? The one thing that we never get back is time. And we lose some opportunities. But as Christians, we have an obligation to remind each other every day, every day, that we're getting closer to our goal. And do this knowing the time that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. So how do we perfect? By being spiritual. The answer is not by being more carnal. It's not by being more physical. It's by being more spiritual. Put on the new man, which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness, Ephesians 4 and 24. But make, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. If we understand what our basic mission is when we perfect, then we're going to understand why. And that's reflected in Colossians 3, 14 and 15. Above all these, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. Let the peace of God rule in your hearts to which also you were called in the body. And be thankful. There's nothing better than a group of Christians that meets together, whether large or small, healthy or ill, uplifted or downtrodden, to understand that we have all the same common cause, the same common goal, the same common head of the church, and the same mission. So as we close out our lesson tonight, we're going to examine the section on how is the work of the church financed. And it's also something that makes us different. It's also something that makes us special. Our mission not only makes this church different, but it makes her special. And as I'm sure you concluded from your study last night, we should only use the authority that we have been given to finance her. When we ask the question, who finances the church? And some of this we've already talked about when we talked about providing in the work of the church and the mission of the church. We concluded that it's the members of the local body. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 and 2, it tells us now concerning the collection for the saints. As I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so, so you must do also. On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside. We are all commanded to do that. In Acts, in 
when Paul is writing, remember that he's writing to Christians on the local level. This is for their body, their congregation. We ask the question, whom or what does this command eliminate? First of all, non-members. And I want to make the point that sometimes we choose to go on vacation or we choose to go out of town. And there are some, sadly, that don't choose to attend services where they're vacationing or where they're going. In fact, it's not even a part of their plans. As non-members, we don't have an obligation to support the local congregation we may be visiting, but we forget that we still need and we still have an obligation to support our local congregation. Even when we're gone, we have to make that provision because we are commanded on the first day of the week to lay by and store. We think about outside bodies, perhaps like clubs, that may have some sort of religious mission. It is not their duty and their job to support a local congregation. Secular organizations and activities, such as car washes or yard sales. And in fact, I opened the paper just the other day, and I was looking through some of these sections. And I was looking at all the yard sale items in this one particular ad, and there were a lot. And I thought, boy, this looks great. There's a lot of stuff that that Brooke might be interested in. But then I looked at the top of the ad, and it was a church. It was a church that was holding a yard sale. Just like anybody else. didn't look any different than any other ad in the newspaper. It was the same. You know, there are fundraisers like bake sales. There are things that, like fish fries that are used to raise money for churches that are struggling to meet their budgets because they have overcommitted themselves to secular activities, to supporting people through giving them groceries who are not even members of that congregation. You have churches that have love offerings throughout the week. And as we saw earlier, We don't have the authority. We have not been given the authority, either through implicit command or example or necessary inference. We have not received the authority to just take up a collection when we decide to do so. We've been given a day in which we can do that. And it limits us to that one day in which we can do that, and it limits us to who can do that. And we need to remember that. The church is also not to be financed through educational institutions. No matter how noble the mission of the institution is, no matter how closely that the church may have a bond with that university, whether through its students or through its faculty or alumni, that's not where the church receives or should receive its finances. We ask the question, who controls the funds in how the church is financed? And it comes down to the local church. Look in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and verse 3, in which Paul said, When I come, whomever you approve by your letters, I will send to bear your gift to, to Jerusalem. Your congregation and its elders have the say in whomever you approve. Acts 11, 29 and 30, which tells us that the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea, They weren't required by some central organization. They weren't given a goal. They did not consult with other churches. They did so. This they also did, and they sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. How do we know that the church is not is to be autonomous 
and not support or be supported by central bodies. We look at these basic principles beginning in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 2, in which Peter said, shepherd the flock of God which is among you. That limits the ability of those elders to that location. They're not over another church. They're not over an organization. They are responsible for that group. It tells us in Acts 14 and 23 that they had appointed elders in every church. In Lystra, and Iconium, and Antioch. They had elders for every church. Each body had its own group of elders. Not responsible for the other groups. And in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 3, Jesus, by the hand of John wrote letters to the churches. He didn't write to a central organization. And each church was different among those seven. They had their own uh, common difficulties. They had their own common triumphs. But they were different. And they were autonomous. How many churches or preachers receive support? It's only through direct support. Why do I say that? It's because we have the authority and the example that we find in the New Testament. Paul said in Philippians 4 and 8, 18, Indeed, I have all and abound, I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you. We find the same common example in the passage that we just read earlier. That the relief that was sent to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul went to where it was needed. It went directly to where it was needed. It was not distributed through a central organization. It was not given other purposes. It was done directly. And that's the example that we have and we follow. And I go back to the examples of these various congregations. The one that decides they're going to have a youth night by showing the movie The Lorax. Is that going to save souls? What about a fish fry? Or a music fest? Or free hot dogs and car wash and fun? And I have to go back and ask the question, what would the Lord think of churches who use other means to finance their work? And we find the answer in John chapter 2, in which, in which Jesus had reacted to this with righteous indignation and appropriate anger. He overturned the money changers' tables and He said to those who sold doves, take these things away. Do not make My Father's house a house of merchandise. Jesus didn't die on the cross so that you and I could enjoy Starbucks coffee. Jesus did not give His life and establish His church so that I could receive personal entertainment. No matter how enlightening or uplifting or whatever religious term I want to assign to whatever experience that is. So when we ask what the work of the Lord's church is, what I have presented to you tonight has been very simple. But it's very powerful in the way that the truth shows us the mission and the work of the church. And as I mentioned earlier, and what you'll talk about, Lord willing, on Friday evening, when we talk about the way that the church of Christ is different because of its plan of salvation, that plan of salvation especially to those of you who may not be Christians tonight, that plan of salvation and that gospel is for you. Jesus died 
to protect you from the gates of Hades, to keep you from the throngs and the throes of spiritual death. I don't want you to go away tonight if you haven't been baptized into Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. I don't want you to go home without seriously thinking of the opportunity that you have before you tonight. To be a part of the work of the church and to follow along with that great mission. To stand side by side with disciples, both men and women, who stood in faith and dedicated their lives and even lost their lives in the cause of something so great, so simple, but yet so powerful. Won't you be a part of the Lord's body? Won't you take up your cross and follow Jesus Christ? His burden is not grievous. He loves all of us the same, and He wants us all to come to the same conclusion. He wants us all to reach the same destination. If you're a Christian who has stumbled, fallen away in your life, perhaps you realize that you've made a serious error in your life. You've done so in a public way, and you want to confess your sins and repent of your sins, in a public way. That's one of the missions, the work of the church, is to perfect one another, is to edify one another, to exhort one another, and when necessary, to rebuke one another. We call all of those who are subject to the Gospel call. Won't you come forward while we stand and while we sing? Uh.